professor just stuck his hand up my skirt again. Okay. You poor old bump. At Nick's Apollo Cafe. It's business as usual. Thank you. I need scramble with bacon, two easy overs with sausage, and a Belgian waffle. But somewhere between the hamburgers and the hash browns, this guy is a hot dog. A cook with a hunger for life. My head is full of quarrel, like an egg is full of meat. William Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. Fell for a waitress. I'm asking you out with me tonight on a date. Just asked her out. Who's lost her taste for romance? I want to go out with you. That's all. No. And oh, Frankie. Johnny? Ooh, I just got goosebumps. On this special episode of Movie Geeks United, we welcome actress Jane Morris as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of Gary Marshall's big-screen adaptation of Terrence McNally's off-Broadway play Frankie and Johnny. Miss Morris memorably played the co-worker of Michelle Pfeiffer's character Frankie in the film, Netta. And it's a pleasure to welcome you to our show to talk about this film that I think... Um, you know, kind of maybe has gotten somewhat lost in the shuffle, but uh, I think some people like myself fondly remember it. But we wanted to make sure that uh, that we did our part in helping people to remember it. So uh, we'll just get into your background and what led you to the point of being cast in the film. I know, I believe, if uh, if the internet is to be believed, and we never know about these things, it says that you were uh, a native of Quincy, Illinois, I think. I am a native of Quincy, Illinois, yeah. Okay, all right, and then you were involved in the Second City, so we can talk a little bit about that if you want to tell us a little bit about how that all came together. Yeah, because that's actually how I got cast in the movie. Okay, so, great. Go. I went from, I, when I was, I wanted to go be an actor. I didn't want to go to New York or L.A. because I thought I'm from Quincy, Illinois, and I'll be eaten alive. <laughs> So I went to Chicago and that was, it turned out to be a really good move because I ended up in like the heyday of Chicago theater where Steppenwolf was happening and Annoyance Theater was happening and Improv Olympic was happening. And, and for me, I, I, when I graduated from college, wanted to go into, you know, I, I had excellent teachers like Dennis Sacek, who's runs Victory Gardens Theater in Chicago. Just all, I just was just steeped in such amazing people around me. I ran a theater in Chicago. Um, we wanted to do plays, but then St. Nicholas Theater, which was the theater that David Mamet worked out of, was literally on the corner from us. And so we were like, uh, so we just, we booked comics that had a, a following, and then we um, opened for them. We did an improv set, and I didn't know. I didn't have any improv training at all. So all of my stuff was kind of like trial by fire in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. And at one point, there was a woman named Noni Breen, Noni Newton-Breen, who was on in the touring company who was moving on to the main stage. Now, in Second City, you have four men and uh, two women. That's the main stage cast. So she was moving out of the touring company into the main company. And she said, I haven't seen anybody that's any good around here you should audition so i auditioned did the touring company for a while and then it just i don't know how to explain what happened next like the we every time there'd be an opening in the main stage and you do just sit on the bench and wait for those people to die so you can be on second city main stage <laughs> and um you know they would just pass us all by we had this 
touring company that we started to be called Bitter Co. because we were just out on the road grinding it out. We started writing our own material while we were out on the road because that's I just figured that's why we came here to write our own material and do it. And we did not have that opportunity. So we started writing material and then us, Paul Sills, I don't know if you know the history of improvisation, the woman that invented it in the United States of America is a woman named Viola Spolin. And her son, Paul Sills, is from whence Second City and all its ilk spring. And mm-hmm. um, that was the compass players and all that. So Paul built a space behind Second City in the building that Second City's in. And then the practical theater started doing a show back there when he stopped doing his show. The practical theater is Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Brad Hall uh, Wow! that all went on to SNL. Yeah. So we, at that point, Bitterco, my little company, said, hey, what about us? Why can't we do a show back there? You're letting people from outside Second City. So we alternated with, they were called Practical Theater, and we eventually opened a show. And that's like a whole long story. I won't go. That was a crazy thing because Second City did not want us to do that. And we we did it. <laughs> so the Second City ETC is still there after, uh, let me think, uh, we're close to 40 years now. The Second City ETC was there. Our second show is a show called, I can't remember the name of the show, Mirrors at the Border. And we did this coffee shop scene. And uh, it was these three people in a coffee shop. And I played this character. We called her One Lunged Connie because there was this woman that used to come into my father's little grocery store in Quincy, Illinois, who was like kind of sideways. And I was a kid and my mom was so funny. And I'm like, what's what's her deal? And she said, oh, she only has one lung. (laughs) (laughs) She was kind of listing to one side and so I played her in this coffee shop scene, and one night Gary Marshall was in the audience. End of story. Ooh, wow. Then he um, – here's the thing about Gary Marshall. Memory like an elephant. <clears throat> like once when we were doing Dear God, <clears throat> a bunch of friends from my Chicago from Chicago theater visited me on the set because he was really nice to let them all in there. And they're all standing there these kids from Chicago and all of a sudden he just rears back, looks at this really big, tall black man named Michael Shepard, excellent, amazing actor looks up at him and goes, I know you, you were in that comic book play. And they're all looking like, what is he talking about? Well, this was indeed the cast of Linda Berry's the good times are killing me. And now, but it was like 10 years later and he's like on a soundstage going, I know you. You were in a show I saw 10 years ago. That's Gary Marshall. <laughs> like, whoa. So he wanted to hire. Our, our first show was called Cows on Ice. And then I think it was Mirrors at the Border that, yeah, he saw that one. And he hired all of us basically to be the advertising staff of Nothing in Common. Yeah, right. And, uh, so we all went out to L.A. and a couple people stayed out here and we did nothing in common. Some of it shot in uh, in Chicago and some of it shot in L.A. And it was that was also J- Jackie Gleason. Tom Hanks couldn't have been nicer. He did sets with us back in Chicago at the at Second City. We just had a blast and then cut to. So all during that time from work, then we finally moved out in 89. So 
all during that time, we um, we were doing Gary Marshall movies, right? So mm-hmm. we did Nothing in Common, we did Pretty Woman, and then and during all that, Gary would call us when he wanted to do a table read. And when you went to the table read, you were usually reading a few parts, and he would say, "You're not auditioning. Just read the lines. You know, don't make a meal out of what you're doing here. Just read it." Mm-hmm. So I get a call for this movie, Frankie and Johnny, to do a table read, and it was at Penny Marshall's house. And I get the script, and I am reading several parts, and one of them is Netta. But because of his admonition about other table reads, I read the part, and I'm like, wow, that's like that coffee shop woman. And you know, and I still was doing her all the time on stage because we improvised stuff out of the newspaper when we did this scene. Mm-hmm. So he goes, so I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that character because you know, help it get mad. And there was a buffet. And at the buffet, <laughs> he comes over to me and he says, you know that character you do in the coffee shop? And again, he hasn't seen it in not in how many years. I want you to do that when you read Nutta. So it turns out that he wrote that part in the script or had that part written into the script for me to do that character. Wow, that's And then, unbeknownst to me, right? So we do it. And every time we did a table read, it was somebody else. The first one was Penny Marshall and Hector Lozando as Frankie and Johnny. And then, I don't remember, there was a couple more in there. And every time we went, there would be different people, but some of the same people. So now we're all, like, looking at each other like, are we auditioning? Like, yeah. It just kept going, and then one day, I don't know if you've ever heard of Taylor Negron, who was oh yes, yes dreamily great. hilarious guy to hang out with. Oh, I can imagine. Well, yeah. we come into the next table read, and Taylor and I are standing there, and it's Lori Metcalf is uh, Frankie on this round, and we have a now we have a very small table, and it's round, and we're waiting, waiting, waiting. We don't know why this doesn't start. In walks Al Pacino, and Taylor says to me. Are we just going to pretend we're all like super cool and we don't really care that we're in a room, tiny room with Al Pacino? I'm like, yes, Taylor. Yes, we are. And now it's Al Pacino reading. And then people start getting fruit baskets. And then they weren't asked back. Oh, <laughs> so we'd wow. be calling into it. They're going, did you get a fruit basket? <laughs> and next thing you know, I'm cast in this movie. And uh, here we go. That's, so that's what happened. That's amazing. That's an interesting story. I, now, before we get into Frankie and Johnny, I, I do want to ask you a question about, I know this is not related to Frankie and Johnny, but nothing in common, uh, obviously Jackie Gleason's final film, and I would be remiss if I yeah. didn't if I didn't mention uh, or ask, rather, if you have any Jackie Gleason stories with him being such a legend as he was. I uh, sort of do, because, you know, he was not well at that point. Mm-hmm. His autobiography or bi- biography had just come out. It was, mm-hmm. you know... A lot of people were having Jackie Gleason sign his book. I never had the nerve to go up to him. Other people did. But w- the thing that would happen is Gary likes to play. So you'll do a scene. You'll improvise the scene. You know, like, he just likes to play, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he, what he does with people he likes that are funny is he has them sit on the set all day or very nearby so he can just grab you and throw you into a scene if he wants, right? Yeah. So... During the par- during the section of filming that um, Jackie Gleason was around for, he would be sitting in his trailer, and he had this old, old man who was just all crooked and bent, and uh, he was like, I don't know what his name was, and he was like Gary's valet. And every once in a while, 
we'd be working and, and this old guy would come crawling in and say, the great one wants to see you to Gary. And then everything would stop. Mm. And he would go out and talk to, I don't know what went on. He'd go out to his trailer and they'd talk. And the other thing that always happened was, you know, your call time is whatever time you get there. You get there at 10 and you're supposed to be there at 6 in the morning, whatever your call time. You're supposed, your onset time might be 10 o'clock. You might not shoot till 4 in the afternoon, right? Mm-hmm. And that's all movies. That's just a thing that happens. Right. You show up when you're supposed to and you may not even shoot that day. Or you may shoot and leave. You never know. Whenever Gar- uh, Jackie Gleason's call time was, we stopped and we shot his scene. The end. So there was no waiting ever for him. So that was what it was like when he was around. And I, like I said, I didn't actually have the nerve to talk to him. I was like, oh, my God, it's Jackie Gleason. I grew up watching that, you know. <laughs> I know. And I know uh, if you I guess if if you could have the uh, the force, the, uh, uh, the the able to predict the future and see the future rather. I And to know that he wouldn't be along around very much longer after that, I, that would have made it. Uh... I think I would have gotten my butt over there. And right, yeah. <laughs> he shook his hand or something. Of course, this is before cell phones and selfies. That's right. You know. Yeah, absolutely. What, what you're lucky is if the on-set camera guy, you know, takes stills. Mm-hmm. I have a million pictures, stills, back background stuff from Frankie and Johnny. Because oh, the wow. guy sent me them all. He let me just, like, take whatever I wanted. Oh, I bet those are fantastic to look at. I would be. Yeah, interested. I've got some really good ones. Oh, amazing. I, I, can't, I can't even begin to imagine how wonderful that would be. Oh, wow. Well, um, yeah, so we covered your getting the part and all that and how you were cast. So I wanted to get into the uh, the physical transformation is pretty amazing. Uh, you know, there are obviously photos of you at the world premiere of the film in uh, out in Los Angeles. And um, gosh, it's just amazing how you physically got into the role and transformed yourself. <laughs> well, I was 38 at the time, I think. <laughs> Sounds about right. Thirty-seven, thirty-eight, somewhere in there. Maybe it was thirty-six when we were shooting. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's how old I was. And the sad news is, it wasn't much of a trans. It's like if I gas my hair back, wear almost no makeup, mm-hmm. and shape myself like the character. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... that's the sad news. And uh, I can look really completely different very easily. And um, and I, yeah, but I don't know what to tell you. That's that's what I did. One day I came in, because my husband actually is in the movie too, Jeff Michelski, and mm-hmm. he is the epileptic that has the seizure. Oh, sure, yeah. Right? I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he was shooting that day, but I wasn't. So, like, I was around, and no one recognized me. And then when they did, they're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. We thought you were like an old lady. I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> well, that's Sad, quite but a, true. It's quite a talent. <laughs> I'll tell you. It really is. Because uh, it is amazing. Now I am an old lady. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're only as old as you feel, as they say. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's... that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I know I'm uh, I'm 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 starting to I just turned 51 myself just the other day. So I'm I'm starting to uh, to have some aches and pains here and there. Yeah, that's right. It's it's getting there. Yeah. So I I can relate. I can relate. Uh, But yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I think what you did uh, with the part and how you 
uh, because it, it is, you know, you, you would not know, and I did know uh, that you were not nearly as old as the character, so um, it was... Uh, yeah, the thing is, I played that character on stage a lot mm-hmm. for a long time, and so I just kind of knew her in and out, you know, and when I played her on stage, she was improvised, so you really got to know her, you know, what kind of quippy things she would say. Yeah. Like, you know, there's that moment where we're dancing in the, we have that whole dance, the party. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. And she says, he, she suddenly goes, Oh, my bra broke or something like that. (laughs) That's right. And then I come back out and, you know, again, Gary would just let us go. And he said, I think he said to me, so Netta, are you braless? And I said, at my age, I just tuck them in my pants. <laughs> and it brought the crew down. And but it was, that's the kind of shit she used to say on stage. Pardon my French. And, right? No, it's all good. And uh, so I'm like, and but they cut. You know, they didn't use it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that would be um, great. Yeah, uh, I think they might say, are you bra? He says something to me. I I don't know what. I can't remember what happened in that, what they left in. Yeah, I was, I, that actually brings up another question. I'll just go ahead and jump to it. It was a little farther down, but I was going to ask about deleted scenes. If there were any that uh, anything that got that got trimmed that you were sad to see go, or or maybe not. Uh, that, and then there was a moment where because Gary would just let us go, um, you know, there were, we did all these little little pop takes where I go up to the window and like when I say to him, Captain Ahab and that's all improvised stuff. And so, and then he would say something back to me and then I would say something back to him. And, uh, cause I didn't know where I should stop. You know what I mean? Like I can always Mm -hmm. say one more thing. And then at one point, Gary or somebody pulled me aside and said on the next thing, where, where, whatever you say, whatever he says back to you, don't let it in there. So I kind of knew that probably came from Al, but that's good. You know, people know what, what they're comfortable with and where they want to play. So that, I like to know what the parameters are. You know what I mean? It's not a weird thing at all. Oh, so there sure. was that kind of thing. And then there's stuff in there that looks like it's like, so again, I'm an improviser, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a little pop scene where she's she's trying to get a pie out of the pie thing that spins around. Oh yeah, right. And they were going to they wanted to do an outtake reel and so they wanted to play a joke on me. And what they did is they made it not stop and spin real fast and I'm still trying to get the pie out of there. And then that was just going to go in the gag reel. Mm-hmm. But it, to me, it just seemed funny, and so I just kept playing, and I didn't stop and go, what's going on, or, you know, I just kept playing, and I started yelling, Nick, Nick, now, I think Nick was the guy that rigged it, so they all thought I was yelling for the prop guy or whatever, but Nick was the name of Hector Elizondo's character, and I was right, calling sure. for Nick, saying, Nick, Nick, this thing's gone crazy, right? Mm-hmm. So they were able to leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> but they were really just trying to get me, you know. Yeah, how how fortuitous is that as they say. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh yeah. 
So, uh, well, um, working with Pacino, I guess, was a little, uh, you know, that was obvious. I think that was the first time for you working with him, as you mentioned before. So I'm sure that was um, uh, a new experience. Uh, if you have any yeah. stories there you want to talk about uh, about I that? Guess, or? You know, he's like an actor's actor. He's super easy to work with. He has insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he He's just in the scene with you. And, uh, you know, I just thought he was a... Uh, I wish I wish I had a, had a chance to get to know him better. You know, he's a busy man, busy actor. Mm-hmm. And I used to run into him once in a while in Santa Monica because his uh he has some sort of like mentor, actor coach guy who has MS or something, some debil well, it's probably gone by now, but he had a debilitating illness, mm-hmm. uh, a degenerative illness of some sort. And Al took care of that guy, I think financially and everything. Um, and so when he was in Santa Monica, he would hang out with, I can't remember the man's name. He would hang out with him. And so, and I had this little comedy club by this point in Santa Monica called Upfront Comedy. And so I used to, and there was a coffee shop that Al hung out at and I used to see him, you know, there to say hi to, but that's it. I didn't really get to know him other than that. Yeah, I guess he was probably on to something else after uh after the after the film wrapped. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. The people I made big buddies with were uh um oh I'm blanking on I made a big buddy with I suddenly can't think of his name. Uh, uh he's so fun. Greg Lewis. He's the um he's the uh, the big cook, the big Greek cook. Oh yeah, and sure. He yeah. was like as a kid, he was standing on a street corner playing the harmonica. And this, this is, you know, somebody came up to him and said, Hey kid, want to be in show business? And he joined the Harmonicats and as a teenager, skipped school, joined the Harmonicats, went on the road and, you know, the rest is history. And he's a delightful guy. And this guy named Bill Bronner, who was a runner, who was a, a punch up writer for Gary and had been with him all through all the TV stuff and all that. He and I became pals. And I can tell you a couple of stories that, I just, so those people that were in the diner, those old men that were in the diner, mm-hmm. those are Gary's old pals. He goes to ball games with them. They play ball. They play basketball. It's like, you know, that's who's in the diner. And it's like Roy Campanella, Phil Leeds, who was like the nastiest old man you ever met. And, <laughs> and, and Greg and Lewis and, you know, and I would come in and they would be sitting there in their, you know, their director chairs and they would be like one day they would just be on a joke run where they were just like topping each other with joke telling stuff like that. One day I came in and they were discussing who was the meanest man in Hollywood and they would float. This went on and I came in in the middle of the discussion, right? So they're on it and they're like, they'd float a name and then somebody go, well, he was nice to my kid or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Meanest man went through Milton Berle, all these people. No, you know, he, he, he knew my kid like the Cubs and he brought him every Cub thing <laughs> there was and, you know, just whatever thing. And then all of a sudden somebody said, Bob Hope. And they all went, Oh, yep, that's who it is. <laughs> and they shut <laughs> up. And they went and got coffee. <laughs> they were done. One day I came in and Danny Thomas had died and they literally, it was like a, it was like a scene from a movie. They were in their director's chairs. They all had a newspaper and the newspaper said on it, Danny Thomas is dead. 
<laughs> just like a movie. And then Phil Leeds, who was indeed the nastiest one of them all, put his newspaper down and he said, well, you can't speak ill of the dead. And they all went, right, you can't. And they put their newspapers down and nobody said one word. <laughs> Silence speaks volumes. Oh, gosh. Crazy. That's great. That's great. Yeah, um... Well, obviously, you had a lot of scenes with Michelle Pfeiffer and Kate Nelligan, so uh, and you you guys all worked together so well. Yeah, uh, we were. I, I thought Michelle Pfeiffer was just lovely. Again, I wish I had gotten to know her better. She's like a girl from Orange County. She's just, you know, when she's bowling and she, uh, you see all those strikes. That's yeah, right. her. Wow. She can bowl. And uh, you know, we went out to the bowling alley, and we oh, here's a good one. So we're driving out to the bowling alley, and to, like it was. Me and Kate Nelligan, Nathan Lane, Al Pacino, Michelle Pfeiffer in a van to go bowl. Like we had to practice bowling or something, I guess. And so they drive us out in this van to the bowling alley. And they were telling stories of like being big in big movies and being on the road. And I'm just, you know, the girl from Quincy. Like I'm not. So they're telling what it's like to be in Italy and get sick, say, or whatever. And I don't know how it came up. But they were talking about love scenes, nude scenes, whatever. And the producer lady said to them, oh, by the way, you get to decide what you want to do for your love scenes. Do you want a, a body double? Do you want to be dressed, not dressed, you know, partially dressed? Like, you get to decide. But I need to know what what your decision is. Which prompted Michelle Pfeiffer to tell this story of doing – was it around midnight? Is that what it's called? Whatever. She's in this movie. I think it was George Lucas was the director. I think again, the story is a long time ago. Um, and they wanted to do a scene with her shot from the back that she would be nude, but you'd only see her from the back. And she said, well, I'll do it. If you don't have the crack of my ass in the shot. And they said, gotcha. We won't do it. In fact, we'll let you see the shot, you know, after we shoot it, so you can see that the crack of your ass is not in it. And so they do this. They shoot it. Well, the thing is, when you look at the dailies, the, the, what you're seeing is it's just a little bit bigger than what's actually going to be in the frame that you're going to see in the film. And uh, it was maybe her first movie, and she didn't know that. So the crack of her ass is in the shot, but it won't be in the shot, right? Mm-hmm. And she had a fit because the crack of her ass was in the movie. You know, she thought it was going to be in the movie. She threw a fit. And uh, she's not a fit thrower either, by the way. Uh, really nice woman. And um, all I could think was, this is never something I'm ever in my life going to have to worry about. Not ever, <laughs> not once. Whether the crack of my ass will be in a film <laughs> that's that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, I was trying to I was trying to figure out which film that was. Uh, I'm seeing it around that time she did Into the Night and uh, Lady Hawk. Maybe that's what it was. Into the Night is that a George Lucas? Yeah, that's I feel a, like it was George uh, Lucas. I remember she said who the director was, what the movie was, and John... I had a picture of what the movie was, and I might have had it wrong just in my head, you know, when she was saying it. So. 
Yeah, that was John Landis, and I could see that happening mm. on a John Landis set. So, because <laughs> he was pretty, uh, he was known for. That's his, what uh, it was, not John Lucas, John Landis. That's okay, what it was. That's the, we, right. we we narrowed it down into the night. Okay, good. Yeah, uh, I was I was just curious about that. Oh yeah, well uh yeah that's 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 that is great and that's oh, and a great Kate scene. Milligan, oh yeah, yes. I'm I sorry. Get back to that. I no, can tell you, you a good Kelly and we she got along. In fact, I happen to know, although I didn't see it. She got a Best Supporting Actress, uh, like, Oscar, I don't know what they call them, in England for Frankie and Johnny. And in her acceptance speech, she thanked me, which I thought was really nice, but I never got to hear that. But she and I got along really well. And, uh, again, I wish I had been able to keep in touch with her. Mm -hmm. But she had just shot um, Prince of Tides. I was going to say, Directed by Barbara Streisand. And Mm -hmm. every... Single day, Barbara Streisand would call up Kate Nelligan at 5 a.m. an hour before her 6 a.m. call and fire her oh, every day. Wow! And just like every single day, it was some crazy, you know, light. They'd take hours and hours between light. Just it was a nightmare, oh. a nightmare. And when we got there on the first day, she said, "Let's have lunch." And, you know, we just went out to a restaurant and had, it was like a table read or something. We just went out to lunch, the two of us. And she told me all about all this. And she was literally like, you know. (laughs) Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. From having that. And, and she was like greatly taken aback by the idea that she had to improvise sometimes in this film. And of course, Nathan Lane is a superb improviser. He started out as an improviser in an improvising duo. That's what put him on the map in the first mm-hmm. place. So I think she felt a little like, oh, these people are really good at what, you know, and I don't know what I'm doing. And it's like, Kate, it's just, you're doing it now. We're doing it now. You know, there's no script for your life. Right, That's what right. you do. You improvise. Somebody says something and you respond. <laughs> that's what you, that's it. <laughs> that that is amazing. I cannot imagine how how she had to how tough that must have been for her to shift gears between working with uh, a director like Barbara Streisand and then going to Gary Marshall, who's so much more uh, seems yeah. well, it's a totally different experience. I can't either. And I at the time I feel like I didn't I didn't catch that in my brain well enough. I think I could have calmed her down more. <laughs> yeah. Not that she was totally freaked out, but she was she was a little freaked out. Yeah, there was probably a little PTSD, shall we say. Uh, yeah, she was a, yeah, she, you know, she's a trooper, that one. Yeah, she's, and she, but, you know, um, I guess she had the last laugh because she did get the Oscar nomination for Prince of Tides, so, uh, that year. So, oh, yeah, yeah, there you go. It, it all worked out for the best, as they say. Well, uh, and yeah, I was going to mention Nathan Lane, too, but you just kind of covered that. I, I know you have the the great scene where you guys are bowling, as you mentioned, and uh, it's, that's really uh, that's that's a good scene. I I like that where the kind of the whole cast gets to all the principals there are all in one place and uh, that's, yeah, those like twins. That. Oh yes, that Those're, too. The twins. Gary put them in all his movies. The twins and the first AD, who is mm-hmm. um, Ellen Schwartz. She's always his first AD, and uh, Ellen is a scream. She's so fun. They referred to them as the Spielberg sisters because they thought they they looked like Steven Spielberg. 
<laughs> wow. Uh, I wouldn't. I would not have guessed that. That's not something that I would have. Uh, that's not the first. No, though. me neither. I'm like, what? I don't. I can't uh, even think what he looks like. They, uh, yeah. Do they look like him? But not I like guess. that. No, not like that. <laughs> what was your? I'm just curious. Uh, what's your reaction to the uh, first cut when it was all cut together and the first time you got to see it? Uh, I'm just curious. I'm always. Oh, always it's like a, to kind of it. an out of body experience. You know, like you don't even think about. I think the only thing I. I really thought, oh, oh, that's too bad. Was the I just tuck them in my pants, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, there's stuff in there that you go, oh, like, okay. So in the dancing scene, right? We do the big horror, uh-huh. and that scene was at night, and we shot that like at three in the morning. Like we were, it was really late, and they had a person come in and teach us the dance, and everybody learned the dance except Al. Everybody learned the dance, and so as we're dancing around in this circle he isn't doing the dance and you know you got your arms linked across shoulders and right. he was literally dragging me down because he wasn't doing the steps and it, you know how it is if it's like running with somebody when your legs aren't in sync it's all <laughs> whack you know what i mean like yeah, you try sure. to hold hands and run with somebody you have to be in in step well this was like crazy and so we're doing this and then he you know it's supposed to be that he swings me onto the floor and we dance, which we do. And I, that, again, completely improvised. But then at the end of it, he just swung me around and gave me a big hug and I started laughing. And that they, as far as I knew, had yelled cut, which is why I was laughing. Mm-hmm. And because they had to, you know, put the music in in post Right, they sure. left all that in. So me laughing is in there. But yeah, I, I thought we were cut. Right. I wouldn't yeah. have been laughing. <laughs> I do remember that now that you mention it. I sure do. Yeah. yeah. Stuff like that where you go, oh, man. Yeah. That was they, not – I wasn't acting at all. That was me yeah. laughing <laughs> at the end of a, of a scene. <laughs> that is surreal when things like that happen. You're right. That's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, and then there was the uh, the reception was critically was uh, pretty pretty good in general. I know uh, there was a lot riding on this film uh, in, to some degree because Gary had had such a hit the year before with Pretty Pretty Woman was such a, uh, a runaway hit, and so everybody was curious to see what he was going to do next. And this was the next project uh, after. Pretty and I Woman. think what happened, and you you'll have to look this up, and uh, but I think I'm right about this. It opened on the weekend of the Anita Hill trial. Yeah, I think you may be right, yes. And that, everybody was home watching that. And literally that thing was shown on the weekend, like the whole thing. It wasn't just, Mm -hmm. they didn't break over the weekend. They kept going. Right. And um, so it really affected the box office that people were glued to their TV sets that weekend. Yeah, that that is true because that that was going on at that same time, and I, I think you're absolutely correct about that. And I, I always thought it was sad that it didn't do the numbers. Uh, I mean, nobody was expecting it to do pretty pretty woman numbers. I know because of uh, you know, that would have been hard to reach. Right. Uh, but still, um, I remember Mike. Clark he finally and, achieved it again with Princess Diaries. Yeah, that he did. Yes, he did. He he did it again. 
but yes, uh, I remember Mike Clark in the USA Today. He gave it, I remember, uh, just shy of a four-star review. He gave it three and a half or something, and that was... Okay. That was my first. I remember reading that review, and uh, this was at a pivotal time for me because I was, uh, I was in my early twenties, and I had just, you know, at that point, I, I, movies were, you know, somewhat of a just entertainment for me, and I, uh, I was getting into that phase of my life where I saw them as more than just entertainment, where they could uh, mm-hmm. uh, reflect the state of a person's, uh, teach you things about. Uh, your own emotional state that you may not be aware of and things of that nature, you know, the, the deeper stuff. Mm-hmm. And this film really connected very deeply with me. Uh, I saw it on a, the Monday after it came out uh, that weekend. And mm-hmm. I just remember, I think I was, there were only a handful, maybe two or three other people in the theater. And I just remember sitting there and just being very emotionally overwhelmed by the power of it, uh, especially in the final scenes. And uh, just, uh, just totally related to it. Um, everything about it and just it really just I, I went out of my way to praise it and try to get people to see it and you know i've i've shown it to quite a few people along the way my daughter is a huge fan of it i've uh, pulled her into its orbit since since it came since mm-hmm. uh, in the years since and so it still has some life but um anyway yeah it, it is it is quite quite a good film and still uh, stands the test of time now i always like to to give my interview subjects a little opportunity to talk about new projects i know you're in some some subsequent films my life uh with uh michael keaton which i'm also a huge fan of and true lies with james cameron you did those after frankie and johnny and uh, yeah i did a lot of stuff after the more recently i did behind the candelabra where i played matt damon's mom right uh i just i just did um right before the pandemic we did um laundromat with Meryl Streep and and ja- uh, Jamie uh, Cromwell, yes. And my husband plays my husband in that movie, um, which is kind of fun. That was kind of oh, fun yeah. to do. And I've done a couple TV shows, and um, I have a recurring character on a show called AP Bio, which is now on Peacock. And um, yeah, the, I mean, those are the most recent ones. But yeah, I did. I did a lot of stuff. I did like, I've worked with some amazing directors because I worked with, uh, I did, um, ugh, I can't remember. Sally Field was in it and it, and Kiefer Sutherland. And it's like a revenge film thing. Oh, Eye for an Eye? I can't think of the name. Eye for an Eye. I mean, that. John Schlesinger um, directed, I believe. John Schlesinger. I think it's one of his last movies. It it has to be, right? Yeah. And um, Sally Field was just unbelievably nice. Oh. Uh, uh, I was someone's birth, birth birth coach. And the baby wasn't due for like a month and a half. And mm-hmm. I jokingly said to her the, night, the day I had to go shoot, I had to be downtown at like 7 a.m. to shoot. And I said, don't have the baby tomorrow. And 2 in the morning I get a call. She's going to the hospital. So I go to the hospital. I leave the hospital in time for my 7 a.m. call downtown. And now there's no cell phones yet, really. Mm-hmm. No, there aren't. And so I'm calling on a payphone downtown, the hospital, checking her dilation, right? It's three, it's five, it's seven. Oh. And we do the scene, which is just me and Sally Field. And in the makeup trailer, I had told her that I was this lady's birth coach. And through the course of the day, as we're shooting the scene, She's like, how is it now? How is it now? Right. And we had talked about, she'd talked about, you know, natural childbirth and all this stuff. We're in the makeup trailer, blah, blah. And then, 
so finally, and now it's like getting to be five o'clock and I know like we're getting closer to the time this baby's really going to come and I'm starting to get really nervous and we hadn't even broke for lunch yet. And now they're going to break for lunch. So they go, okay, we're going to break for lunch. Now I'm done, right? They've shot me. And I'm like, okay, I can leave. And they go, <laughs> we're going to do lunch and then we're going to come back and turn around on Sally shooting over Jane's shoulder, and then we're going to do an insert of Jane's hands. Ooh. And I'm just standing there with my mouth hanging open. Because I can't, <laughs> what do I, I can't say anything to John Schlesinger, like, right. no, you know. Sally Field said, oh, no, you're not. She said, she's a lady's birth coach, and she's got to leave right now. You'll just get a stand-in. That's what you're going to do. Oh, And I wow. left, and as I was leaving, she said, have a good baby. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a sweetheart. Wow, that's a that's a I'm great story. I'm telling you what, right? Yeah. That's oh, just great. Thank well, you I, so much. Well, I'm a tremendous fan of slashing her, especially Day of the Locust. I rewatched that not too long ago. Wow, what a what a powerful movie. I know most people talk about Midnight Cowboy, but uh, and it's great, but uh, Day of the Locust kind of yeah. gets lost in the shuffle. That's the one that's pretty interesting guy. I didn't have much uh dealings with him, but Candelabra and um, Bawa Lendermat are both Soderbergh. Yes, and I right. Two completely different. He's amazing to me, but I had two different experiences with him on each movie. They were he was like a different guy, not in a bad way, but like one experience, I knew every single thing I was supposed to do, what my role in the shot was, like in a way I never have. I totally understood what I needed to do to make what he was doing happen completely. I've never had that feeling before. <laughs> Laundromat? Wow. Nope. Yeah. We didn't know what was going on. Even Meryl Streep's like, so on the next take, why don't we try to, moving on, you're like, were the cameras rolling on that? <laughs> 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 we don't even know. So, yeah, completely different. But I, I really like him. I, I, it's a, it, I treasure having worked with him. I really do. Lead a life inside of your mind that has nothing to do whatsoever with my time. She stated very clear. She made it very plain. Your subplot world is so cavalier that you knew the tension inside the sweetness was so near. She stated very clear. She made it very plain. Yesterday 
lovers are right And the tempered scale of experience cannot forever indict Two hearts looking to belong in the heat of the sun As a force tonight Way Wouldn't worry about them Cause people in love cannot condemn uh, Those who are in love too Frankie and Johnny Well, love is alright Frankie and Johnny Well, love is alright Well, love was all right.